testimonies and baptisms and declarations of following Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Well, thank you for joining us uh, for worship today. If, uh, if you're new or visiting here, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we are in part two of a five-week series called Making Room. And uh, we're working through a, a workbook as well in our small groups. And if you don't have a copy, we might have a few left. We might have to make some more. I'm not sure. But uh, if you need to grab one, uh, talk to uh, one of the pastoral staff, and we'll, we'll help you out with that as well. Now, I'm sure I've told this story I'm about to tell you a few years ago, um, but most of you have probably forgotten it, so uh, I'm going to tell it again. Um, when I was 21, I was asked to be uh, program director at Nest Lake Bible Camp. Uh, it was really my first kind of like full of responsibility type of ministry setting I had been in. Um, and we kicked off uh, our camping season with a family camp, and it was great. You know, everyone had a fabulous time, Uh, but by the time Sunday came around, I found myself completely overwhelmed. I I thought, like, what have I got myself into? I can't do this, was sort of after my first weekend of camp. This was my conclusion. I'm out. I I don't know what to do. In fact, um, my parents, they had come up from Salmon Arm to join us for that uh, weekend, and they took me out for lunch on the Sunday, and I couldn't speak, which I know is almost unbelievable, hard to believe now, but I was so overwhelmed, I was actually paralyzed by fear at that moment. My parents dropped me off back at the camp, and uh, we were expecting um, our first wave of kind of kids' camps to start the next day, and I just pushed off on a canoe by myself and sat in the middle of the lake. I had a little pocket, New Testament, and I can remember just being so desperate, just begging God for his help. Uh, I opened that little blue pocket-sized Bible, uh, not sure even what I was going to read. Uh, and the page I just happened to turn to is uh, uh, where Matthew 11, um, 28 to 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Come to me. That was the answer to my prayer that I had been praying. God, how? Jesus says, come to me. How am I ever going to do this, Jesus? Come to me was his answer. In in my rhythm of work that summer, I needed to, to just be with Jesus. In times of silence, of listening, of of waiting in resting and in prayer, uh, reading the Bible, and just, just being with God. I needed to enter his rest each day. Um, I'm convinced that in the extremely busy work schedule we had, I, I started the day at, um, at, at 5.30 um, is when I woke up and spent half an hour just waiting on God, just resting in him, because I had a 6 o'clock is when my meeting started, And uh, we had one hour off during the day, and then I got to bed at midnight each night. And that was every day for the summer. The pace was horrendous. And the only way (laughs) to be sustained was to listen to what Jesus said and make room to be with the Father. Um, In Luke 5, we see Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy. And then others begin to get wind of it. And they begin to eagerly seek Jesus out. Uh, Listen to verse 15. We read, yet the news about Jesus spread 
all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. So what does Jesus do when he's at the height of his popularity? I mean, he's the most relevant guy on the block. He's sought after. So he capitalizes on this, right? He just revels in the limelight and, and, and rushes headlong. Well, no, that's not what it says. It says, but. That word but is really important. It's a contrastive word. It signals this instead of that. But, or instead of giving into the pressure of his work, or the pull, giving into the pull of popularity, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Eremos in the Greek, lonely places, and prayed. What does this signal to us? It shows us that even Jesus required a pattern or a rhythm of life, a pattern that was consistent in connection of reliance on his Father, a commitment to lonely places for prayer sort of life. So I ask myself, and you need to ask yourself too, why would we imagine that we need that sort of rhythm of life any less than Jesus would? if we're going to live a life of, of faithfulness and a life of faith to what God is calling us to. But I think there's more to this point than simply, well, Jesus did it, so we should too. Um, although that's true. He sets an example that we should follow. We need to discover why Jesus did this. So that as we ask ourselves, why would I set time aside for solitude? What will it accomplish? That We can answer that question for ourselves. So notice, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the gospel narratives, they begin with Jesus being baptized. Baptism is showing Jesus' allegiance and alignment with his Father. It it still means that. That's what baptism signals. It signals that we have turned away from a self-focused life and turned from other competing allegiances to align ourselves with God and what God is up to. It signals that we're no longer living for ourselves, that we have actually died to pursuing our own selfish agenda, and we're now living new life under God's loving leadership. So Jesus' baptism is signaling that he is aligned with his Father's work, and he does it in the power of the Spirit. So listen to what happens at Jesus' baptism. This is from Mark chapter 1, 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up, Out of the water, he saw heaven open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. My son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Now consider, at this point in Jesus' ministry, what has he done? Like, what's he accomplished? Healing? Preaching? The gospel writers, all of them, simply begin the story of Jesus' ministry here. There's no record of Jesus doing anything at this point. And still, he hears these words, My son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Before Jesus has achieved anything, he knows that his identity and value are rooted in what his father has said about him. It's not earned, not an achievement based on his successful ministry. You know, we live in a world that is often requiring us to prove ourselves. 
we live in a world that can easily, um, we can find ourselves easily attaching our sense of worth or our identity to our achievements. In fact, uh, Marxist philosophy, a, a part of it would say, in essence, you are what you do. Your identity is defined by the work of your hands. And many in our world have bought into that. Truth be told, I too fall prey to that sort of thinking. I've been tempted to buy into that as well. Or or capitalist thinking, philosophy on the other hand, says you are what you own. Or you are your ability to produce and consume. But the gospel of Jesus challenges both of these and, and calls them out on the lie that they are. We need to notice, too, directly after Jesus' baptism, we reread that he was led by the Spirit into the desert, a lonely place. Again, same Greek word, eremos, here. And here, Jesus is fasting. He's hungry. And during this time, the devil shows up to him. Luke records the scene like this. Listen to what the devil says. He says this, If, if you are, God's, or if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And notice what the devil's doing there. He's calling into question the word that the Father has spoken over Jesus at his baptism. If. If you really are. Meaning, do you really think you're the Son of God? Do you really believe that stuff he said about you before you did anything? Well, maybe now you should prove it. Prove that you're worthy of that name. Jesus is doubted to tempt. Here he's tempted to doubt the word of grace already given by his Father of love and affirmation. He's being asked to Prove himself worthy. Here's what we need to notice. In in Mark's gospel, you have his baptism, then Jesus' temptation, and then he begins his healing and his preaching. And if we move a few verses forward in Mark chapter 1, we find um, Jesus is gaining popularity. In verse 35, we read, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went off to a solitary, Eremos place where he prayed. We read next that his disciples went out to find him and they say, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Which means, as William Lane says in his commentary, what are you doing here in this wilderness place when you should be in the midst of the multitude who are clamoring after you? Listen to Jesus, how he responds. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So what happened to Jesus in his solitary prayer place? I think this. I think two things primarily. He's reminded who he is and what his mission is. By remembering the voice of his father, Jesus is able to resist the temptation of the devil in the, in the desert to prove his identity And again, he's in a desert place again, the solitary place of prayer, and he's able to resist the temptation of his own disciples to be adored and celebrated by the crowds in Capernaum. Now, I'm going to make a guess. Don't put up your hand, but I'm going to make a guess that I am not the only person in this room who has at some point been distracted from living out my true identity as God's child. And I doubt I'm the only one here who's felt myself lose sight of God's purpose for my life. So Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And he says it to you and to me. And I think that the rest we receive from Jesus is the same sort of rest that Jesus received from his father in his solitary places of prayer time. 
What was that? Well, it was a rest from the need to prove that we're lovable or that we're worth something. It was a rest from the need to find validation or, or worth from the work of our hands, whether it's, you know, am I a good mother or my sales are up, I'm, I'm making money finally, I'm a valuable person, or, you know, I, I sure have made an impact on others through my charity work or my ministry, now I know I'm a somebody. Just as Jesus was tempted to find his value and identity in his performance and achievements, we will face the same temptation. But like Jesus, we too can come and and hear the words of our Father speaking over us. In trust, we come to Jesus as we come in repentance and faith and find new life in him. And then we hear these words, you are my son or you are my daughter whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. And just like Jesus, we hear those words not because of what we've accomplished, but it's an identity we simply receive by grace. My wife's favorite verse in the Bible is 1 John 3, verse 1, and it reads, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The mission of God, you see, is is to redeem and restore what was lost when humanity rebelled against God, to bring us back into a place of right relatedness with God, with others, with our own selves, and with the rest of creation. And Jesus, in, in giving up his life on a Roman cross, letting it be pulled apart for you and me, and then being powerfully raised by his Father, He makes it possible that you and I, as we trust him, can truly become his sons and daughters. So what's solitude for? It's for that. It's for being reminded and reconnecting with our true identity. For being reminded who we are and whose we are. I think it's also for hitting the reset button. As we need to refocus on our God-given mission. Solitude and silence with God provides an opportunity for us to reflect on our lives, actually to evaluate, to take stock, maybe even repent and recognize how we've been functioning out of line with God's call on us. You know, um, as I was coming back from Nova Scotia in October, uh, I was on a layover um, at the Calgary airport coming back from from, from school stuff. And I was looking over the bookshelves uh, at one of the, the places, just interested in what are people reading today? Um, and I, I was fascinated by this book, and I, I picked it up, and the title was Never Enough, Donald Trump in the Pursuit of Success. Just notice that title, just Never Enough. It struck me. And it struck me not only because it's a description of maybe how Trump functions in life, but really reflects the culture of which he is a part, and actually which you and I are a part of as well. So the question is, what keeps Trump, and at times so many of us too, constantly dissatisfied, feeling never enough, always in need of more, maybe it's, I mean, the obvious ones maybe, more money, of course, but more success, more time, uh, more status, more recognition, more power, more fill in the blank. Yes, we live in a never enough sort of world, And that offers us a reason for constant striving, for constantly working to keep pushing 
for more. But that's not all. I turned over <laughs> the book and I read a fascinating quote from Trump. It says this, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see. Yes. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you're saying, I don't like what I see either. No, I'm just horrible. Dave. Ah. Um, it's an, here's the thing though. As I read that, I went, wow, that's an honest admission. And you know what? That's me too sometimes. I don't want to look at my life because I don't like what I see. It's good for him for saying it out loud. Perhaps some of you feel that way too. If we took stock of ourselves, we might not like it. What's Trump's approach? (laughs) Just don't look. But the Christian story, thank God, it tells us something different. It tells us we must look at our lives. But the good news is this. Even if we don't like what we see, and we won't at times, we know that God, through his son Jesus, forgives us of our failings, our sin, our rebellion, the ugliness, actually, that we contribute to the world. And not only that, this is important. We find that God is committed not just to our forgiveness, but our transformation. God doesn't just make us his, he makes us like him. So silence and solitude with God will lead us to stopping to listening to our life, we will in the silence be be faced with God. (laughs) We'll be faced with things about ourselves we don't like, but in that, God will speak his word of you are my beloved son or daughter and I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. And God will also show you what needs to change too. Um, As we studied in our our book series in the first week, we looked at Romans 12, uh, In verse 2, we read these words, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, which includes that restless, never enough pattern, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Making room in the pattern of our lives to be honest with ourselves is a part of that. Why? So that we can feel rotten about ourselves? No, that's, that's actually not the point. As Trump says, we might not like what we see, but as we sit quietly with God regularly in the knowledge of God's grace over us, we allow him to address and redress and transform those patterns of behavior, those attitudes, those things that don't yet look like Jesus. He addresses them with us. He does it gently sometimes. and He does it sternly sometimes, but he addresses them. Maybe that's why we keep ourselves so busy. Maybe that's why we often have just constant media input. We we don't want to face the things in ourselves that we don't like. And so we keep busy so that life doesn't catch up with us. Or maybe we know that the pain will creep in. Maybe, Maybe we have to stay busy because we have this nagging sense of dissatisfaction. And we think that maybe we can satisfy it if we can just achieve that next milestone, if, if we can afford to take a bit more time off or go on a better vacation or something. And here Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I give you rest. Where do we go? Um, you know, if I was to ask you, where does your day start? Most of you would say something like this. Well, when the alarm clock goes off and I, and I get up and I, you know, kind of rush to the shower and get some breakfast in me and then 
rush to work or to school or maybe to get the kids to daycare. And um, so the beginning of the day starts with the morning time. And then we rest at the end of the day from our work, right? That true? Yeah, more or less. The Jewish concept of a day is different. Um, it begins with sundown. A Jewish concept of time says we start the day in rest with sleep and refreshment. And while we sleep, we trust that God has been at work since he never sleeps. And we awaken from our rest. And then we work from that place of rest and trust rather than rest from our work. That's a wildly different concept of time, isn't it? It, it, it paints a distinct view of how time functions in that um, socio-religious context. I'm not suggesting that we uh, adopt that time scheme, but, I, but considering it, just thinking about it, I think helps to remind us that we are human beings, not human doings. Just sit that for a moment. And I think we need to ask ourselves at this point, is my sense of self-worth found primarily in what I accomplish or how much money I make or how well-respected I am in my community because of my work? Or is my identity rooted first and foremost in God's love for me? Of course, this doesn't mean that we should not put effort into what we do or work really hard at doing our calling well. We need to do that. But when we look at our... As we evaluate this, it can transform our reason for doing what we do. So be honest with yourself and that question for a moment. Is your identity rooted in God's love for you or is it something else? If your answer is this, it's not God's love, but I want it to be. There's good news for you today. Jesus invites you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. All of you who have taken on a, a yoke or a way of life that requires constant upkeep to know that you're worth something, Jesus says, lay that down. Take up my yoke instead, because I'm humble and gentle. The way of life I offer, one lived in dependence and trust and connection with the Father and His grace the way that actually leads to full life, not the cheap counterfeit that you've bought into, come to me and I will rest you. That's what Jesus invites you to today. That question, who are you? How you answer that will not only define the pattern of your life, but also the quality of it, and dare I say the destination of it as well. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, the question then is, how do we let Jesus rest us? How do we respond to his invitation? Uh, there's many ways that you can do this. I want to focus on one this morning. Uh, in 1909, an Italian poet, uh, Filippo Tommaso Marionetti, composed what he called the Futurist Manifesto. Uh, among other things, he, he, he states, we affirm that the world's magnificence has been enriched by a new beauty, the beauty of speed. Now, we might agree that speed can enrich our lives, and it can, even in beautiful ways, surely. But as we're now in the early 21st century, there are many ways in which this celebration of speed has become pathological. It's become like a disease. 
faster isn't always better, especially the things that matter most, like family and friendship and the soul. Carl uh, Honro said in his book, In Praise of Slowness, the problem is that our love of speed, our, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time, has gone too far. It's turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. So the question is then, how does God wanna, want us to address our obsession with speed, with the busy pace of life? We need to get back to our God-given rhythm. And here's one way, is by practicing Sabbath. And I know for some people, especially maybe in my parents' generation, talking about Sabbath kind of causes this allergic reaction. Um, since in some homes, in some Christian traditions, Sabbath keeping was, as Ken Shigematsu puts it, a dreary day filled with don'ts. Don't play baseball. Don't play games. For goodness sakes, don't chew gum. Um, Sabbath, however, is a word that means rest or to cease from something. As I'm going to show it, it also means to celebrate, especially now in light of Jesus. That's with a dancing feet, (laughs) finding rhythm. Um, Genesis 2-2 is the first time we see the word Shabbat show up in the Bible. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Um, It's not in my notes. John Walton, in his excellent commentary, argues that rested doesn't mean, okay, God's done working now, but rather he celebrates what he's made. I think that's true. He's celebrating the goodness of his work. He's standing back and reveling in it. As human beings, we are created to image God, to, to bear his likeness, and even pattern our life after him. And so we too need to take a day that he set up this kind of this rhythm, this beat in the way that the universe is made that requires a day of, of just stopping and, and, and rejoicing in what God has done. So part of our being human is, is that God rested, so we rest too. But we need to notice um, that this resting for a day of the week is a reminder that God is God and that we are not. It reminds us that although God is limitless, of course God rested, not because he was tired or needed a break, but as a way to stop and enjoy all he made. But for us, as we stop, we're reminded that though God is limitless, we are limited. We have limits. And Sabbath provides a time to slow down, to appreciate God and what he's done to give thanks to him. Practicing Sabbath is about finding our God-given rhythm, God-given rhythm again. Here's what Barry Jones writes. To enter Sabbath rest is to inhabit time differently. It's to let go the need to watch the clock, to move a bit more slowly through the day, to pay more attention to what's happening around us and within us than the fast life usually allows. The Sabbath... um, It no longer has the exact meaning as it did in the Old Testament. Um, Since in the Old Testament, part of its function was to point to a time of liberation. Now it's not no longer a sign pointing forward since Jesus, God's liberator, has already come. And I realized that was a really big statement. And uh, I took out a thousand words of my sermon last night explaining it. If you want to know more, I've got a book. Come see me. Um, Taking time to rest to enjoy God and his good world, to slow down and unplug from the worship of speed in our culture, it still points ahead 
to what we believe that God will one day do through Jesus. To give us a time where God puts all things to rights, to how they were meant to be. So let's finish off just with a few examples of how we can practice Sabbath in our day and time now. So what is it? It's looking back in celebration. Sabbath is, is stopping our regular work. And it's a signal of trust in God. To stop being productive is a way of saying, God, I believe you're going to provide. But I don't need to keep producing because I believe you will give us enough. Um, Dan Allender captures well how God's commands still function for us, especially this one. A commandment is often assumed to merely to be a prohibition. Such thinking is idiocy. It's not mincing words here. God's commandments keep us from sucking diesel fumes in order to orient us to delicious fresh air. Sabbath is the healthiest air for us to breathe. What's he saying here? He's saying that what God is asking of us, he asks for good reason. In fact, Jesus, he's in an argument with religious leaders, and he tells us the Sabbath was actually made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. What does he mean? Well, it's, it's that the Sabbath is not intended to be life-sucking, but actually life-giving. It's a refreshment to our lives. So the Sabbath is taking a day to find our rhythm again, to stop, to celebrate, to enjoy what God has done, to enjoy his good earth, our neighbors to be filled with laughter and joy. And of course, God is the object of our celebration. Practicing Sabbath is as well as taking, I think, times for solitude and silence at points throughout our week, as well as in our month and our yearly schedule, gives us an opportunity to find our rhythm again, to challenge um, in our lives any inner compulsions in our soul that try to earn a sense of worthiness uh, or identity for ourselves. So Sabbath keeping becomes a, a chance to switch gears and simply be. And it's in a mode that's different than the rest of our work week. So we might ask, well, what do we do on Sabbath? How do I determine what's really going to be restful for me? You know, for me, I, I read, I write, and I, I meet with people and do planning all week long. That's the profile of my work. So what I find is going to rest me is going to be outside, usually, enjoying nature. It's, you know, fishing, walk, walking, wrestling with my kids, having friends over for meal, and not in any kind of like pastoral level, but just for their friendship. Those are life-giving, resting activities for me. Uh, our kids call it family day. Um, that's what they know our Sabbath as. Oh, is it family day today? You know, there's that day where we're going to stop and just be together and be. Um, let me leave you with an example from uh, a busy lady who was a student, and, and she found her rhythm in taking a day off a week. Marva Dawn was a professor and, and writer, and she speaks of a time when she, she just had to trust God um, through Sabbath-keeping during her PhD at Notre Dame. Um, at the time, she was required to learn to read three languages, uh, French, German, and Latin, all three at the same time. And here's what she said. After only six weeks of class, I had to be able to translate a thousand words in a two-hour test in each language. Toward the end of the week, as she was studying, the knowledge that the Sabbath would soon come gave me incredibly powerful comfort and courage to persist. Even as, at the beginning of the week, memories of the Sabbath delight I had just experienced motivated me to begin again. And on Sunday, ceasing to work at language set me free for lots of fun. Every Sunday I enjoyed worship, 
Bible study. I ate different foods than I ate during the rest of the week and engaged in relaxing and creative activities. Sometimes I played the organ for worship, went to the beach or swimming pool, took long walks or played in the parks in the afternoon with friends or just by myself. Most of all, Sunday was a day for enjoying God's presence. I wanted to draw your attention to that example because she's, I would say, legitimately busy. And yet, she trusts God not only to meet her needs to get her schoolwork done, but to meet her. And she just took a day off for worship and, and, and rest and celebration. The day doesn't matter. In Jesus' death and res- resurrection, we would say that God has redeemed all time and space. But taking a day off, finding our rhythm again, that's built into the very creation story, that really does matter. Um, my wife was reading through this last night, and she reminded me, she said, I was going to say, hey, for me, Sunday isn't the day I take off. That's true. It's a full work day for me. She says, we don't do Sabbath very well yet, Dave. I said, yeah, I've probably put that in there. So um, we don't do Sabbath very well yet, <laughs> but we're learning to, and we're trying to. Um, I take from Friday at 5 p.m. until Saturday at 5 p.m. as a day where I cease my For you, your work schedule might not allow to have a regular set day off, and that's not a problem at all. My encouragement is is simply that you find a way to stop and to say, I'm not going to use this chunk of time to make money, to be productive in my usual ways, but I'm going to waste some time and just celebrate God and enjoy what he's given me. So, and I'd encourage you as well, in addition to just taking a 24-hour period off once a week, One of the things Catherine and I have been trying to do is schedule a few retreats into our yearly schedule too. And this isn't a holiday that's action-packed and filled up with exciting things. We usually go away to a cabin that doesn't have TV or internet access. So we can just be with God, be with each other, cook good meals, walk, pray, read, listen. We're beginning to build that into our calendar and it's been very, very good for us. I'd also encourage you maybe to take a walk daily or just take a a 10-minute to start with period of just saying, I'm just going to be quiet before God. You know, my best praying times are when I walk my dog. I seem able to focus and and quiet my life down from the digital inputs. I can leave the phone at home and just be with God. You know, maybe maybe you're a mom and you have almost zero time where there's not a kid hanging off of you if you've got little ones. Maybe it's that few moments of quiet while the kids have gone to bed before you have to hit the pillow as well, that you just say, God, I want to be with you in quiet. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and uh, they're going to just lead us in one song. And as they do, I just want to um, mention, in, in, in Israel today, among the Jewish people, their customary greeting is still Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace. This greeting reminds us of the purpose of the Sabbath. As Barry Jones puts it, to practice Sabbath is to practice shalom or God's peace, is to rehearse the way that things are supposed to be, that peace between God, ourselves and others, with our own selves and with the rest of nature. Weekly Sabbath keeping is a rhythm of remembrance and anticipation, looking back to creation and ahead to the renewal of all things. As we practice Sabbath, we live into the vision of God. Will you live into that vision? Will you make room in your life to just be with God? 
to be reminded who you are and whose you are and what your life has been given to you for. Let's rest and celebrate what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. Let's build that in our lives. Why don't you stand as we uh, just respond